Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is that Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse Orgy. number 12. And would you please consider partnering with us financially? And the word as of we the sovereign Lord the reads the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, world. he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever bear fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have you... have?" Answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Vodi Bakum, the pastor and author, and also now uh, the dean of African Christian University in Zambia, Africa, he once said this, we're not seeing terrible things in our culture because we vote the wrong way. We see terrible things in our culture because men love darkness rather than the light. So I had titled this message, The Wrath of the King. And I've, I've titled it this way for two reasons. First of all, that's exactly what we see in the text here. What we see in these verses is the wrath of Jesus. Because think about this. The only time in the Gospels... The only time in the Gospels do we see Jesus speak a word to destroy anything rather than to create something or to heal someone is right here. He pronounced a curse on this fig tree and it was destroyed completely all the way to the root. This is a shocking development in the the story of Mark because we have not seen this side of Jesus to this point. This right here by itself should cause everyone to sit up and take notice of what's happening here. And not just that, right after this, Jesus, we see publicly and forcefully drive people from out of the temple. He drives them out, the people who are selling things, and he prevents people from carrying things through the temple. Now, some people will downplay the intensity of what Christ Christ is doing. They will downplay his emotions and his actions here, but 
But the text tells us he was flipping over tables. Have you ever seen anybody flip a table over before? Okay. If I was right now to energetically flip this pulpit over, I'm going to tell you it would create instantly an uncomfortable, emotionally charged environment right now. Everybody's heart would begin to race. Things, the whole feeling in this room would change. Jesus flipping over the table was explosive, and it was actually violent. Right? When somebody flips over a table, everybody understands that something's wrong. Right? That somebody's angry. That somebody is demonstrating their, their rage. The fact is the wrath of Christ is visible in this text. That's exactly what we see here. He destroys a tree with his word, and he destroys the peaceful marketplace atmosphere of the temple by his actions. His wrath is on display. And I believe that this is actually a foreshadowing of his wrath that will come. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Which then leads to the second reason I named this sermon, The Wrath of the King. Because when Christ's, when, when, when God's coming wrath is finally poured out on the earth, the one who's actually coming in judgment is none other than Jesus himself. Right? The one who's coming to destroy the wicked is Jesus himself. Revelation 19 makes it absolutely clear. And this is important because this understanding of who Christ is, this truth about Jesus is in complete stark contrast to what popular culture says about who Christ is. Popular culture does not like a wrathful Jesus. They hate a wrathful Jesus. In fact, anytime that you, you hear non-Christians or nominal Christians talk about Jesus, or when they appeal to his nature in, in order to make a point, they always have an image of a soft-spoken, gentle, unassuming, tender, compassionate Jesus. They always want to connect with a loving, smiling, benevolent Christ. If you don't believe me, then listen to the most popular preachers of today. The most widely listened to people, preachers of today. You will hear them. And what you will hear over and over again is about this soft, loving, undemanding Jesus who wants nothing more than for you to have a good life and for you to be satisfied and fulfilled in your life. Most people want to think about Jesus in the terms of the Lamb. By the way, which, is he, which he is. He is the Lamb, the spotless Lamb. And He is compassionate, and He is long-suffering, and He is patient, and He is certainly gracious, but that is not all who He is. Jesus is absolutely the Lamb, but He is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, which means He is also powerful, and He is also ferocious, and dangerous, and in some sense, terrifying. Jesus Christ is gracious, but he is also wrathful. He is the Savior, but he will also be the judge. He is loving, but he is also completely just. He is the Lamb. But please make no mistake, he is the Lion. And we see in this text the glimmer of the Lion showing through. Now, all the way <clears throat> to this point in Mark, we have seen the lamb over and over again. And we will see the lamb continue on from here, right? As Christ the lamb is led to the slaughter and he is sacrificed on the cross. He, the spotless lamb of God, will be slain for us. We will see that in the text. But for this moment, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the king of the universe 
And the first thing that we see out of him is the king. And his nature is not the lamb, but the lion. We see the glimmer of the holy, righteous, and just wrath of Jesus himself. Which leads to the point of this particular text. Because there actually is a point to this. Right? There's a lot to uncover in this text, and there's certainly a lot to talk about, and there's lots of implications that we need to draw from this text. In fact, this is so much here that we're probably going to spend the next few weeks unpacking it because there's just too much important stuff to talk about. But what I want to do right from the very beginning is I want to like set the tone for this entire conversation by bottom lining for you what the point of this text is and, and what this text is about. It is about the judgment of the king against Israel. That is the point of the text. Now, you might not actually initially see that, but just hang with me. You will see how that works itself out. Now, the reason why this point might not be completely obvious or apparent is because, because the fact is, this text right here is one of the most complex and one of the most difficult texts in the entire New Testament. Not to mention there's a couple of textual variants here that actually make this even more complicated, Right? In fact, this text is so difficult, and frankly, the subject matter is so shocking that there are some scholars who just take this text and reject it as historical and saying, this is not, this must have been added later or something, because this is not Jesus. In fact, a New Testament scholar, T.W. Mason, wrote about, about Jesus here cursing the tree. He said, it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in service of ill temper. That's how he sees it. He just can't imagine that this is Jesus. Kent Hughes says that many reject this story because it seems to them that Jesus is acting like a spoiled child who's not getting his, his way. This text, brothers and sisters, the idea of him cursing you know, this tree for not bearing fruit when it wasn't even the time for it to bear fruit really bothers a lot of people. It really bugs them. Not to mention that many people, you know, the idea of Jesus becoming so angry that he's going to go flip over tables and drive people forcefully out of the temple, again, seems uncharacteristic to the Jesus that they know and love. And so the subject matter itself makes this text difficult. Right? But then in addition to that, this text itself is really complex because I want you to see what's happening here. Right? Look at the, the, the way the events unfold. You have Jesus walking hungry, and then he curses the fig tree. They go to the temple, right? and he flips over tables, and then they see the tree again that's withered to the root, and then suddenly Jesus is talking about prayer and have enough faith to move mountains. And you're like, wait a minute, did I miss something? What happened here? Like That doesn't make any sense. How does that all get pushed together here? Right? But as strange as it might seem... This text actually demonstrates a very clear and important point for us, which is the truth, as you've heard me say a thousand times, and probably another thousand times more, is that every text of Scripture must be read and studied and understood in its original context. You must study the text in its context. Because I'm going to tell you, apart from that, a text like this is not going to make any sense. You're going to read this text and you're just going to read over it and move on to something else. You're not going to fully embrace this. Right? In fact, I would be so bold to say is no one's going to understand this text outside of its context. It's impossible. Right? No one's going to do it. There's too many, there's 2,000 years that separates us and the author of this. There's too much going on here. You're not going to simply pick up your Bible and just read these verses by themselves out of context and clearly understand what's being communicated here. And, and, and you won't certainly read these verses and have a biblical way to apply these to your life if you take it out of context. And the reason why I know that to be true 
is because there's so many false teachings that surround these few verses right here. For example, there are a lot of people who teach that Jesus, he's not really fully omniscient when he was man. That he wasn't really omniscient. Right? They'll say he didn't see, he didn't realize, he didn't know that there were no figs on the tree. That's why he went over you know, to get figs. And he cursed the tree because he was mad, because he didn't, he didn't know. Brothers and sisters, that's simply not the truth. And the reason why is because when you read this in context, you understand that's not accurate at all. Not to mention Scripture itself, all the other Scriptures that, that tell us that He is omniscient. Another false teaching is, that finds its justification in this text is the prosperity gospel. You want to find verses that they use to prop up the prosperity gospel? It's these right here. Now, if you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, it's the idea that God will give you whatever you want in life, if you'll just pray hard enough, and if you'll just believe enough and have enough faith, God will give it to you. You want that Porsche? Then pray hard enough, and he'll give it to you, right? That God will heal you, and that God will give you wealth, and that he will make you successful in all of your endeavors if you will pray enough and believe enough and have enough faith. That basically God exists to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy, again, if you have enough faith. And what they do is they go right to these verses. Out of context, they'll just vert, they'll, they'll read the verses 23 and 24, which say, Truly I say to you, whatever says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Well, how about that? Right? Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, right? And it will be yours. Well, then I'm praying for, you know, a $10,000 raise. And I'm believing for that, right? They will take this text and say, there's the proof, right? You want something? Just pray about it. If you really, really believe it will be yours. You want that job? You want that car? You want that money in the bank? You want your mom to be healed from cancer? Just pray and believe enough in all of, with all your heart, and it will be yours. And guess what? If, you, if it's not yours, then it's just because you didn't believe enough. You didn't have enough faith. I've even heard a pastor in this community say, Don't you dare pray for me and then pray but your will be done to God. Because it ain't about God's will, it's about your faith. Whew. By the way, that's when Kim and I ran to another church years ago. This is a dangerous, dangerous false teaching because it takes texts like this completely out of their context. And as we're going to see in the coming verses, has nothing to do with the prosperity gospel. Now, the final false teaching I want to draw your attention to is probably one of the most widespread and probably, unfortunately, one of the most accepted false teachings by those who are even conservative and believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And the false teaching is this, that, is, that this text, especially the part about Jesus driving merchants from the temple, that this text is a prohibition against anyone selling or buying anything inside the church. Whether it's you know, T-shirts for youth groups or dinner tickets or books or even pies and desserts at our dessert auction. I've heard people say, you can't buy and you can't sell anything in the church because there's no buying and selling in, the, in God's temple. I've, I've heard them say that. They're quoting, trying to quote from this text. I've also heard people use this text as a justification to say that the church can do nothing else to raise money for anything except for 
collecting tithes and offerings, that we can't have fundraisers, that you can't open a daycare, or you can't open a school, or you can't do anything at all except take an offering to fund the church activities. Right? And, and, and they will cite this particular text right here and say, that's the justification for that. But again, as we will see from the context, this is not even remotely what Jesus is talking about in the text. It's not even, even in the ballpark. This is a blatant misunderstanding of the text. And, and really, the only reason people believe teachings like this is, is, they, is, because, they, is because this text right, is, is been taught by somebody who probably has good intentions and is believed with good intentions, but it's not at all what the actual text says or what careful Bible study reveals. Right? It's not what this text says or means. And so, so, to say, so it's safe to say that this is a difficult text, to say the least. And so we're going to take a couple of weeks to unpack this text uh, and, and try to really discern what the original author himself, Mark, is trying to communicate um, to that, to us. And as we first, and the first thing that we need to, to see, and the first thing we need to address here is, is, that, is the context. Is we have to really like put this back into the framework where it comes from. And the first thing that I need for you to understand is that you have to understand this entire series of texts together. You cannot understand them and separate them. Yes, you can memorize them separately if you want to, and you can quote them separately, but you're not going to understand them by themselves. These are all related events. They're not unrelated. You cannot separate what happens to the tree from what happens in the temple. These things are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. One of these texts interprets the other and vice versa. Right? And so to take the verses about Jesus driving the merchants and trying to apply that to today's church without actually considering what's happening with the tree is just simply eisegesis. It's not actually dealing with the text. Because you cannot understand what's happening in the temple without understanding what Jesus is doing with the tree and vice versa. In fact, I want you to notice something here. This is an important little feature that Mark uses. This section begins with Jesus cursing the tree on the one end, right? And then ends with, with the tree being cursed on the other end. And smack dab in the middle is what happens in the temple. This is a literary device that Mark employs. And it's not the first time we've seen this. In fact, we've just seen a bigger section that, that does the same thing, right? Mark will bookend an idea with, with similar events. We just spent... Uh, going through Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10 in a section that began with Jesus healing a blind man and then Jesus ending that event with healing another blind man. And in between, there were three particular events where Jesus declares that he is going to die and be resurrected and his disciples display that they are what? Spiritually blind. This was not accidental. This was a purposeful way that Mark told this story, the way God, through the Holy Spirit, led him to tell this story so we could see that this entire section that we finished was about spiritual blindness, and only God can heal that. It was not an accident he did it that way, and it's the same thing here. This event at the temple is sandwiched between the encounters with the tree. This demonstrates that there is a connection here that you cannot undo. So contextually, this text must be interpreted together. Whatever way that you understand the temple, that understanding has to be connected also to what happens to the tree. Another thing to take in consideration is the historical context. This is Passover. 
And this is at a point in history where everyone's expecting the Messiah. Jesus is, has been teaching for three and a half years. The whole messianic fervor is at, at a fever pitch. pitch. Um, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem just before this on a donkey declaring that he is the king and the Messiah, right? And in this text that we're looking at, the cursing of the tree and the driving out of people from the temple, these are Jesus' very first acts after he has just declared his kingship. This is important as we move forward because anytime someone takes over leadership, either as a president or as a monarch or as even a CEO of a corporation, their first official acts are always highly significant and symbolic of what to expect to come. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is doing here is super significant as we're going to see as we go along. We also need to consider the immediate context. Like we just said, Jesus rode in on a donkey you know, in the triumphal entry, as we talked about we, last week, what that meant, that he is the king. But then there's this verse, verse number 11, that's connected to that, but we didn't actually address that last week. I saved it for this week, and it's verse 11. Verse 11 reads, by the way, it's right after he just rides into town, right? Verse 11 reads, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I have read this entire section so many times over the years, but I I have often wondered, why include that little detail right there? Why make note of the fact that he rides in triumphantly, right, on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, and then he goes to the temple, looks around, and then goes home. It seems really anticlimactic when you just kind of look at it from, from your English perspective. I mean, doesn't it? Like, you know, everybody's shouting and screaming, Hosanna. He rides in. He looks around the temple. Okay. And then goes home. Like, what, why is that even important to be included? Right? What's the point of that? Well, let me just be straight with you. If you don't understand what happens in verse 11, you're not going to understand in everything else that's connected here. Because this is the key to understanding both what happens with the tree and also what happens with the temple. And to understand this text, there's three fundamental things that you need to know. Number one, as we said, it's Passover. And people have come from all over. And when people come to Jerusalem, to the temple, they were expected to bring with them two things. They were expected to bring an animal for a sacrifice. And they were expected to bring something to pay their temple tax with. Because that's what they owed at Passover, is an animal for a sacrifice and the temple tax. Now, the fact of the matter is, is traveling with an unblemished animal that's required for sacrifice and that's kosher, and keeping him kosher and unblemished for hundreds of miles is really impractical. Traveling was hard enough as it was, and so these merchants, they would sell these animals, right, they, they provided really for these travelers an important and valuable service because the animals were already available. They were already of the right quality. They had the right characteristics required. And they were guaranteed kosher so that the priest didn't have to spend a lot of time having to deal with that. This was a valuable business in Jerusalem. In fact, it was said, it's been said that every Passover around this time, about 200,000 animals were sacrificed every year. Right? This was a huge and important business to the Jewish community. The second issue is the tax had to be paid in the amount of half a shekel of silver. And and the coins 
There were coins specifically produced for this purpose because the, because the coins used to pay the tax could not have any idolatrous images on them. And Roman currency, as with all other currencies, had the images of, of kings and, and emperors. The Roman coins had what? Caesar. And what did it say? Caesar is what? Lord. They were not going to let you take that money and put it in the temple. That's just not how that works. And so people not only had to pay the tax, but then they had to change currency. And the money changers were an important function and a valuable business to the community that enabled them to, to do this. Again, so the businesses themselves were not the issue here. Right? Now, Another thing that you need to know is that these businesses historically were not set up in the temple, but on the Mount of Olives. That was tradition. Instead of the temple, uh, instead of the temple courts, they were about half a mile away on the Mount of Olives, so that was still close. People can get what they need and then come to worship. <clears throat> and this is the practice that went on for so many years. It was actually, it's his, um, according to tra- tradition, tradition, it was Caiaphas, the high priest, who broke the tradition. And change that. And so he is the one who, who actually invited the merchants to set up in the, the court of the Gentiles and on the temple grounds. And he did this for what? Why do people do anything they, they do? For the money, right? It was for his personal gain and the gain of those in the Sanhedrin. Which then leads to the third thing that we need to know. And the third thing is this isn't the first time that Jesus has went to the temple and drove people out. I don't know if you realize that. He actually did this before, at the very beginning of his ministry, right before, or right after, he turned the water into wine, right before he met with Nicodemus. In John chapter 2, it, it, it tells us that he went there, made a whip, and then drove out the merchants and the money changers. And Jesus had already confronted the Pharisees and the, and the, San, and the Sanhedrin about this, this issue. Before I go on, is anybody freezing to death in here, or are we okay? All right. Forever hold your peace then. <laughs> and so with that then, Jesus came, comes back to Jerusalem, not as the visiting rabbi, but as a king and the Messiah. And the first thing he does is he comes to inspect his father's house and he looks around and what does he find? The merchants and money changers have set up shop again on the temple ground and the king is, is angry. That's what verse 11 is about. Jesus sees this mockery set up again, and his anger burns. But it's late at night, and so he goes back to Bethany, and he's coming back in the morning to deal with this issue. That's the setup. That's the context. Now with that, look at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now there's some people who will say, well, see, this is obvious. Jesus didn't know that the fig tree didn't have fruit on it, so he's not omniscient. Well, the problem is that that doesn't square, again, with what Mark just said in the rest of Scriptures, because Jesus just, like the, the event before, just, just before that, when, when, when he sent the people in to get the donkey, proved that he was omniscient. Not to mention, Jesus was a Jew. He was living in, the, in a Jewish agricultural society in the first century. Right? And, and what, what you know about agricultural societies is they typically know when things grow and when things are ready. And the Jews knew that figs were not ready for the Passover. Nobody had figs to eat during the Passover. Right? 
Figs would, would leaf during the Passover, but you wouldn't have the fruit until June, much later. And Jesus knew this as a Jew, but guess what? Jesus also knew this because he's God, and he's the one who created the fig tree. Well, what actually happens here is Jesus, he's using his hunger and the fig tree that he, is, that he sees here as a living parable. See, Jesus uses parables over and over and over again to make a bigger point. And he's using the fig tree as a living, visible parable. He wants them to remember what's going to happen here. And the meaning of this parable will become apparent after Jesus visits the temple and then returns to the tree. And then it says, And he came to it, and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus in this moment pronounces a curse on this tree as an illustration. And what is the illustration? Those who do not bear fruit when the king king comes are cursed. That's the illustration. Those who do not have fruit when the king finds them are going to be cursed. That's the illustration. Now, I don't want to press the analogy too far. I don't want to jump the gun too much. But this is a warning that we all as Christians need to see. Because what else does Jesus say? He says, you will know them by what? Their fruit. Talking about believers and unbelievers and false teachers. And he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into what? The fire. This is a warning. This is why we, as Christians, should be warning people all the time that just because a person makes a profession of faith at some point in their life doesn't mean that something actually happened that they're saved. Just because a person prayed a prayer at one point in their life doesn't mean that they belong to Christ. And I know this is not a teaching that people like. I know this is a teaching that offends many people. I know this is a teaching a lot of people don't want to hear. In fact, I've had people tell me they just refuse to believe that. And the reason why they, they refuse to believe that is because my kids made a profession of faith when they were like five years old. And even though they're living like demons, I'm holding out the hope that that profession of faith is what's getting them through. You see, you see what I'm saying here? They, they want to believe that just somehow something magical happened. They prayed an incantation to God, and that just magically protected them, even though they're living in open rebellion to God, not even at all professing their love for Him. But Jesus didn't say that you're going to know them by their confession. He didn't say that you're going to know them by, your, by their church attendance or that you're going to know, know them by their bumper sticker they have on the car. He said you're going to know them by their fruits. Those who come in contact with Christ are changed. Those who Christ saves have a new heart, a new nature with new affections, and this shows up in their lives. Again, not, they're going to, not going to be that they're going to ever be perfect, because no one this side of heaven is, but there will be fruit of repentance in their life. There'll be fruit of that, of that supernatural transformation in their life. And just, and just as the fig tree can have beautiful leaves and still look good, but have no fruit, a person can have a beautiful, emotional profession of faith at some point in their life and still bear no fruit in their life. And the point is, If the king finds you with no fruit, you're cursed. That's why Paul warns us and says very clearly in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize about this about yourselves, that, that that Jesus Christ is in you? 
Because guess what? If he's in you, something happens to you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Those who have no fruit will be cursed like the tree. And then in verse 15 it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So this, again, is a repeat event of several years before. Jesus, in his righteous indignation and in his divine wrath, drives these people out of the temple, flipping over tables, And this is a direct confrontation, by the way, with a lot of different people, but it's especially a confrontation with the religious leaders. Jesus, as the king, is now challenging their authority. In verse 16, it says, And he would not allow anyone to carry anything throughout the temple. Which, again, if we don't understand the context, we're going to go, well, why is that important? That means, like, if you have a, a purse, you can't carry that, or you had a backpack, you couldn't carry that. Well, the issue is, is that people would use this part of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, as a, as a shortcut between uh, the city and the Mount of Olives. And people would walk back and forth carrying their merchandise and their wares and their goods, not reverencing the temple as something to be worshipped, but simply it was, a, it was a thoroughfare for them. And this was an issue that even the Mishnah prevented, actually prohibited people from actually conducting their business by, by transporting goods and services back and forth across here. But people didn't care. Instead of respecting the temple as a place of worship, they, they used it as a, as a highway to get from one point to the next. Well, Jesus puts a stop to this. He would not allow, let people travel back and forth carrying their merchandise, which, which is the point of that. Then it says in verse 17, And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Brothers and sisters, we are now at the part of the text that really gets to the heart of the matter. Right? This is the part we have to get clear about here. Because Jesus is now explaining why he is doing what he is doing. Notice Jesus quotes Isaiah. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Right? And, and this right here is an important reference. Because he is not saying that the temple is simply a house of prayer. He is referring to this specific text. Because in this text, God is promising to include foreigners or Gentiles into his worship and into his family. That this will be a house of prayer, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. In fact, Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7 read this way. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these things I will bring, I mean, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. He says then, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet another to him besides those already gathered. This right here is the heart of the issue. The temple was not just for the Jews and for their worship. It was also to include the Gentiles. You see, God's plan has never been about one singular people. 
It has never been about one singular people. The notion that God somehow included the Gentiles into his plan of redemption as plan B simply doesn't fly. He is always intended to include them from the beginning. The Jews were never intended to be only God's people. The temple was for everyone to come to worship. Everyone. Now, did the Jews have a certain special status before God? Absolutely. Because they were God's chosen instrument that he would use to bring salvation to the rest of the world. It is through the Jews that Christ came into the world. And because of this, they had a closer relationship. They were closer to the temple than everyone else. They had, they had the court of the Jews that they were allowed into. But the court of the Gentiles was on the temple mount, and it was for all the nations to come to be near God, to reverence Him and worship Him. The court of the Gentiles existed so they could come and worship the sovereign Lord themselves. But, but guess what happens here? The Jews who are supposed to be concerned with, with, with being a light of salvation for the rest of the world become arrogant and self-centered, and they use this court that's designed for the Gentiles and their worship, they use this court for their self-serving pursuits. They use it as a thoroughfare to transport their goods and services. They use it as a swap meet to sell animals and to change money. And notice Jesus says, you've made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus is not calling it a den of robbers because of their prices that they're charging, right? That they're charging exorbitant prices. Some people think that that's what the issue is, but that's not what he's saying here. This is not about the money that they're making. He's calling it a den of robbers because the Jews are robbing the Gentiles of their right to worship God. Because think about this. How are you supposed to, to pray and worship in that atmosphere? Hundreds of thousands of people lined up, pushing and shoving against tables, buying animals, you know, exchanging currency. All the noise that's going on there and, and the merchants shouting at the, at the customers back and forth. I mean, you've been to really crowded marketplaces. It is not a peaceful place of prayer and worship. This is no longer a peaceful house of prayer. This is a chaotic swap meet. It's a flea market. And Jesus isn't angry because people are buying and selling on the temple grounds. He's angry at the hypocrisy, the blatant hypocrisy of the Jews. Because here they are pretending to be righteous, buying these kosher animals and making sure they have the exact right currency so that they're fulfilling the letter of the law, all the while failing to live up to the basic tenets that God had given them to love their neighbor as themselves. While pretending to look pious, they're trampling on those that they were meant to bring to God. Instead of drawing the nations near, they're alienating these people from God. They were the fig tree. They looked beautiful on the outside, full of leaves, but they had no fruit. They were not bearing the fruit that God had intended them for, that he had raised them up for. They were failing to do what God had set them apart for. In fact, I don't know if you realize it, but throughout Scripture, the fig tree is oftentimes a symbol of Israel. And so Jesus pronouncing a curse on the tree and then driving these people out of the temple was him showing his wrath upon Israel and the religious elites. He's judging them. This is an act of righteous judgment, which is what we're going to talk about next week. 
We're going to talk about Jesus judging the Sanhedrin and Jesus judging the temple and Jesus judging Israel. We're also going to talk about Jesus judging America and even judging his church for not having fruit. Right? And make no, no, make no mistake, please, I want you to hear me. People oftentimes wonder why we're here in, in America. We're here because we're under the, the righteous judgment of God. We cannot be a nation who celebrates the blatant sin that we celebrate. We cannot celebrate, and people are celebrating, the willful destruction of 3,000 babies a day since 1973 and think that at some point that God is not going to judge us. What we're seeing is the righteous judgment of God being poured out. We're going to talk more about that next week. And then after that, we're going to talk about prayer because there is a connection here to the prayer that, that Jesus is offering and, and suggests for us. But today what I want to do is I want to stop right here with this picture of Christ and his wrath. And I want to think through a few things that we see here in the text. I think it's important that we really kind of like get a grip on this because there's, there's a lot here. The first thing that I want you to see here is the value of worship to both God and man. That's one of the things that we see in the text here. This is why Jesus is angry. Right? Worship is valuable and important to both mankind and God. In fact, God is jealous for his worship. He will not share his glory with another. And his anger burns against those who would seek to get in the way of those who would try to worship him. So please understand, right? this is the heart of the issue here. The Gentiles were being denied by the Jews the right to corporate worship, and Jesus was pronouncing judgment against them for their hypocrisy, which means public corporate worship of God is important and it is essential. The nation of Israel was judged by Christ for their hypocrisy, denying the right of public corporate worship to the Gentiles. This worship is essential for all who trust in God. Right? He has called us to worship Him corporately. He has called us to worship Him publicly. And He will judge any of those who get in the way of that. It also demonstrates that worship is serious business to God. I don't think we ever think about that enough. That it isn't some activity that's just performed by people who gather together. Right? It's not just singing. It's not just, hey, we're coming together to have an experience together. It is a serious affair to come and worship the living God. And the reason why it's a serious affair is because, because God is supposed to be glorified through our worship. He's supposed to be glorified through the public corporate worship of his people coming together. And this is important for us because oftentimes people will come to church with the attitude that worship is about us. It's about how it makes us feel. I really didn't enjoy the worship today because I just wasn't feeling it. Right? As one of my favorite pastors was told by somebody, they said, you know, the, the message was great, but I just didn't feel, I just didn't think the worship was very good. And he said, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. Right? Yes, amen to that. God takes it seriously because it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about how it makes us feel. It's not about what our favorite songs are, what songs we like. It's not even about the temperature in here, even though I do my best to try to find the happy medium for everybody. 
It's not about being comfortable. It's not about preachers that, that preach too long or preachers that preach too short. People don't complain about preachers preaching too short, by the way. It's not, it, it's, it's a, it's not about pastors, you know, it's, about, it's not about pastors talking about the love of God rather than the wrath of God. Right? Hear me, brothers and sisters, worship is not about us. It's not about you. It's about God and His glory. But remember, what brings God glory, what glorifies God always is what's good for us, is what's best for us. So worship is, is, is valuable to both God and man. And we see that in this text. This is the reason why Jesus is pouring out his wrath here in this moment. The second thing we need to see, or we need, we need to think about is, is we all of us have to just come to that place in our own theology, in our own understanding, where we embrace Christ for who he is. This is the journey all Christians have to make at some point, where we have to get over ourselves and stop loving the Jesus that we make in our own image. We have to embrace Jesus for who he is. Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he is not some weakling. Jesus is not unassuming and non-confrontational in character. We see that right here. As many people imagine, they want to imagine him as somebody who never makes waves. Vodi Bauckham calls, calls this the, the sissified, needy Jesus of modern culture. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus certainly is loving, but he's also forceful. He's even in your face at times as we see here. Jesus will comfort you, but he will also shake your world up. That's what we see here. His wrath is on display. We see the wrath of the king. We need to embrace him for that. Because it's who he is. The third thing we need to think about is what we see in this text here is but a taste of his wrath. This is but a sampling, a foreshadowing of what's to come. His cursing of the tree is a foreshadow of something to come even greater. Think about this. He destroyed this tree with a word. With just a word, it was completely destroyed to the root. Bear this in mind, that idea that he, that he cursed and killed this tree with a word. As I read to you, Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. It reads, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I don't know about you, but that makes my heart shudder a little bit. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he was called is the Word of God. This is Jesus Christ. A completely different picture than what we're used to seeing, by the way. And it says, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine living, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not the picture of Jesus in popular culture. This is the picture of Jesus, the regal king. This is the picture of Jesus when the wrath is about to come. And the one who's bringing the wrath is Christ himself. And what is his weapon with which he strikes down all who are evil? What is his weapon that he uses to put down his his enemies? It is his word. Brothers and sisters, all of creation sprang into existence by the word of God. Demons were cast out by the word of God. People were healed by the word of God. People are saved even today by the word of God. But wrath, the wrath of God will be poured out on the world by the word of God. And all of God's enemies will be subdued and destroyed by the word of God. It is right for us to tremble in the presence of the one who can give life and take it away simply by his word. As Paul rightfully says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The wrath of God is coming and Jesus will be the one who will pour that out. Now that we've come to a clearer understanding of this text, and again, there's a lot more for us to talk about, And we can actually see that this is about the judgment of the king, right? What are we going to do then with this? How do we apply this? Well, there's two applications I think that that I could suggest. There's more, but I'll limit them to two. First of all, we need to accept Christ on his terms. I mean, you've heard me say that before, but I really need to drive that point home. We need to accept him for who he is. Because everyone likes the nice Jesus, right? That's why so many modern songs, as they say, I didn't say this, but somebody said this, that so many modern songs, when you listen to them, it's Jesus is my boyfriend kind of singing, you know what I mean? And believe me, I like those songs too, right? But the reality is, is everybody likes the nice Jesus. Everybody likes the Jesus where kids sit in his lap and he's hugging them, right? Everybody likes the Jesus that says, I don't condemn you. Right, where he says, love your neighbor, where he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Everyone likes that Jesus, but not everyone likes or accepts the full Jesus. They don't like the Lion of Judah, the one who will come and make war. Guess what? It's not my opinion that he's going to make war. You just heard it for yourself in the Word of God. He's coming to make war. They don't like the Jesus that flips over tables The Jesus that's going to judge the nations and people. They don't like Jesus who says, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. They don't like that Jesus. Now, the reason why people are uncomfortable with who that Jesus is, it's not that it's who he is. It's just because really people ultimately are uncomfortable with the gospel. That's why Paul says, do not be, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel isn't about just the love of God, right? When you talk about the gospel, if that's all you ever talk about, you're not talking about the gospel. Yes, it's part of it, but that's not all there is to it. It's not just about grace. 
It's also about God's wrath and his hatred for sin. It's about the fact that the world will be judged and those who meet him with, with their sin still intact will be judged by him. And God will pour out his wrath upon them, not for a moment, but forever. This is the truth of the gospel. You see, the good news doesn't make any sense at all without the bad news. Jesus, I want you to hear me on this, please. Jesus dying on the cross is stupid if it's just a symbol of his love for us. It's stupid and a waste and pointless if it's just God's way of saying I love you. There's lots of ways he could say that he loves us. The cross is the intersection of God's grace and his wrath. The cross is the image of his love for us and his absolute hatred for our sin. Jesus died a horrific death because the sin that we have is utterly horrific. And anyone who is found in their sin because they refuse the sacrifice that that Christ offers them on their behalf will experience the eternal, awful, terrible wrath of the king. If God did not spare his own son who was innocent, his wrath, how much more will he not spare those who spit in the face of Christ and his offer of salvation and grace? We need to accept that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, He is the lamb, but he is most certainly the lion. That's the first implication. We need to accept Jesus on his terms. The second one is, we need to make peace with the king. And if you are a believer, you need to exhort people to make peace with the king. Because the king is coming. This is why we need to lay aside all pretenses. If you're someone who has, who has not turned to Christ in genuine faith, if you are someone who has rejected God in favor of your sin, if you're someone who's made a profession of faith, but you know there is no fruit in your life, I am calling upon you today to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Because if you die in your sins, it is too late for you. And you will eternally suffer for the consequences of your sin. There are a couple of people that have died recently that I have some knowledge of. One, I know for a fact what happened to him. I know where he is. The other one, I'm not sure. And my heart aches for their family because they don't even know. If you die in your sin, you will eternally suffer for the consequences of your sin. And the thing is, is you know for a fact that you are a sinner. Nobody has to convince you of that. It is in your nature. And because of your sin, God's wrath hangs over your head. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus came into the world as the Lamb of God, the perfect spotless Lamb, to live the life that you couldn't live, to fulfill the law that you couldn't fulfill, and to pay a penalty that you couldn't pay. And on that cross, your sins and your guilt and your shame were laid upon Jesus Christ. And in return, he offers you his righteousness as if it's your own. And Jesus Christ on the cross endured the full weight of the hatred and the wrath of God against his sin for you so that you can be free forever from that wrath and also the power of sin. All you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. That's the simple instructions. It's to receive the gift. Repent Turn away from sin towards God in faith, trusting in Him and Him alone. And if you do that, if you would believe that, that you would be saved. Christ died 
for you. And he was raised a new life, proving that what he did worked and you can trust him. And through faith in Christ, he offers you eternal life, adoption into the family of God, forgiveness of your sins, a righteousness that is not your own, and a hope that one day all things will be made right, that there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow and no more viruses and no more injustice and no more riots and no more hatred amongst God's people. All you have to do is turn to Christ in repentance and faith and make him your Lord. And for those of you who wish to do that, please let me know afterwards. I would love to talk to you. And for those of you who know Christ, brothers and sisters, this is the message that the world has to hear. This is the message that we have to take out to those around us. You have been called into the mission of Christ to make disciples. This is your calling card. That there are people out there that need the hope of Christ and you are the one who have been ordained by God to take it to them. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to take it to them. What we see here in this text is a glimmer of the wrath of God to come. We can rejoice the fact that that wrath is going to, we're spared from that wrath. But there's so much work for us still to do as is evidenced by what's happening around us. So let's come before the Lord and let's pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.